Alex, how you doing? Not too shabby, you know, just living the dream. Yep, living the American dream in 2020, which has quickly turned into a nightmare. But we're getting by. I feel like it's been a nightmare for a minute, and that it's just now that wound is festered to the surface. That's exactly how I feel about it. I mean, things have been not so efficient for a long time. Um, We've kind of let a lot of stuff go on for long enough that once we had a major breakdown of just about every part of the system with COVID, the, the economy, the governance, and even leaving our houses, once everything broke down to that point, that was like a, that should have been a wake up call. I don't know if it has been for um, everybody, but it should be. We know that we can't really uh, handle something like this coming along. We weren't prepared mentally, you know, or uh, with our systems, with our institutions. They weren't ready for something like this. It seems to me that, well, okay. So let's, let's, let's not get ahead of ourselves. First off, let's get let's get some introduction going. Who are you? My name is Key Karanek. I am coming at you from Ames, Iowa. Uh, where where are you at right now, Alex? My name is Alex Howard. I am from I'm living right now in Knoxville, Knoxville, uh, Tennessee. The the one and only. Oh uh, yes, yes, Rocky Top. I love Tennessee. I've only been down there the one time, but uh, I went down to Memphis on my way to Alabama, or on my way back, actually. And what I was surprised to see in Memphis was, like, voodoo shops. You know what I'm talking about? Like, just like uh, Bourbon Street in New Orleans, kind of a a center of music and culture, uh, you get kind of the same thing in Memphis. Well, yeah, because um, it definitely has that that same Mississippi Delta um, culture for sure. Right. Yeah, Beale Street's the place to be. Uh, I haven't even been. It's like it's Memphis is like five hours away from there, five and a half hours. It's definitely nice. I mean, it's just exactly like Bourbon Street. I don't know if you've ever been down there, but it really yep. struck me because I came. You know, I went down through Louisiana. I hit Bourbon Street, of course. I had to. I had a good time there. Crazy place. Um, I think the Saints had just won something, so it felt like Mardi Gras because everyone's marching through the streets. They've got their beads, their their glitter, and uh, fiddlers in the street and all that. It was great. But uh, coming out of there, I went right to Alabama and then to Memphis, and Memphis just struck me the same way. It was, you know, uh, it's a musical center, just like, Bourbon Street sort of is, you know. Um, I love places. Let's see, I'm in Iowa. We don't really have, uh, we don't really have a culture like that, you know. It's not as hopping yeah. here. I love the Midwest, but it's not hopping. It's a little slow, you know. Definitely low-key. Yeah. And that's great and all, but, you know, I think a cultural renaissance is what the Midwest needs at this point. Um and I think with the shift in our culture that we're facing right now, whatever uh, COVID means, as we start to rethink just about everything that we do, just about the way entire way we live our lives, um, I think you see restructuring like that. You see um, 
certain elements of culture rise and fall and things shift. So I'm excited for that. I'm, I'll be honest, I'm, I'm a little nervous about it. I'm a little nervous because I see us on the very, on a, like a razor's edge of a fence post could fall either way. And um, I feel that there's a lot of people that are trying to claim that they have the answers um, and people are trying to find quick fix solutions, short-term fixes for long-term issues, kicking the can down the road. And it's been a, it's been an issue in our society for a while. I, I can see a lot. I can see all the way, well, pretty much every society, but, um, Ours in particular, you have examples like um, like climate change, people kicking that can down the road, things like um, the limitations of corporatist capitalism that was with the antitrust laws. It felt like that was more of a quick fix to stop the bleeding of a hemorrhaging America rather than actually fundamentally solving the issue and the same thing with um, with the way we treat any time that America goes into a recession you know we have we have a big stimulus um, no systemic underlying issue fixes there's no solutions put forward it's simply put a band-aid on it and pass it to the next generation. Right. We're definitely seeing... Uh, so com- uh, capitalism does rely on this limitless growth. And then when you have something that stops the wheels, like COVID, it, it doesn't know how to react. And, you know, I... On the, on the whole economic debate, which has largely become something that's between uh, communism or socialism and capitalism, I think... We're seeing a lot of pushback against capitalism. We're seeing people wake up to the problems that it has. Um, I'm not going to say I'm completely anti-capitalism in a fundamental sense, but we're seeing how the way that we're doing things is absolutely, uh, it's profiting certain people. It's profiting certain echelons of society, but it's falling back on everybody else. uh, And that's globally. I mean, if we think our financial situation, if we got our, you know, job taken from COVID or something like that. If we think that's bad, if we look at other countries that have been at the butt end of consumerism for decades, uh, it's even worse there. So obviously the way that we're doing the system isn't working, but a lot of people are unwilling to give up that dream quite yet. Cause I mean, it's tied to the American dream is, is how people view it. Um, is that you can go and you can, work hard at something without being, you know, given anything. You can go work hard on something. You can pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you can uh, make something yourself. People want to be one of those millionaires that are continuing to profit, you know. Um, So they're willing to let that system exist because it has that opportunity. But they're very willing to, unwilling to let go of certain elements of it that are never going to benefit them, you know, not in the long run. Um, and there's the whole red scare, you know, 
the whole any anytime you have someone like Bernie who was a pretty far left socialist in a lot of ways, just having that tie to the word socialism really makes people think there's like a sinister plot involved and they think it's it's uh an attempt to bring us to some Stalin-esque form of governance, which obviously nobody wants. That 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 was a horrid government. But uh people fail to see the gray as to how maybe we could adopt some of those policies. I say some of them. I don't think a full-blown, um, complete left shift to some kind of socialist system is going to save us either because it has its own issues. But there's a point well, in between, you know. There's always a... a... This, is, this is this is something that I've, that I've had a lot of issue with, I guess. Um, the thing that bothers me about it is you have... The Ameri- this is America, so it must just be American sensibilities, but the American right concerns largely with, um, with economic and f- economic and fiscal conservatism. That's what that, I, I would say that the, the American people that are right would say that. And the left are much when they talk about issues. You're you're breaking up quite a bit over there. I'm not sure what's what's happening, but it's garbling quite a bit. Um. So there's a good bit of feedback. I don't know if it's coming if it's my voice coming through your mic, but it could. We're on phones right now, so I assume a lot of things could go wrong. But anyways, it's it's we'll figure it out as time goes on. Yes. Um, so the right cares a whole lot more if, if, when it comes to government with the practicality of things. They care more about the debt, the deficit, um, how are things going to get paid for. They And they see bleeding heart liberals as people who are impractical mm-hmm. and they just want more systems in place more, more things, and they don't have a, a plan on how to sustainably create those ends. And I think in a lot of cases they do have a point, but the issue that I see now is this fundamentalist shift that has happened in the right where you have concepts in the left that would completely satisfy both parties concerns like it would be cheaper for the overall economy everyone would save money and it would benefit all of the population these these are policies that are no-brainers to me things like universal health care um when you don't have universal health care people go to the doctor later when they're more sick end up needing a higher degree of care a higher caliber of care that costs a premium and it puts strain on the entire system when these people, you know, who have pneumonia, like I can wait a week instead of getting it treated immediately. And that would save everybody money, the taxpayer, the individual, the, the, um, the doctors themselves would, would save time not treating um, dire cases as often. It's, it's an ounce of prevention is what you're saying. An ounce of prevention is worth all the, you know, those tax dollars. Yeah, but we can, we can, it's not even that though. Like, we can quantify, like, 
that's the thing that I don't understand about the left is why they don't appeal to the sensibilities of the right. They're arguing for like the human case, and the response from the right is always going to be, "Well, obviously, I would like for these things to happen, but we can't afford it." Right. And the left's response is just to try to appeal to their emotional faculties rather than saying, "Hey, this is cheaper. Here is how it's cheaper." You will save money. Everyone will. Yeah, the appeal to emotion in American politics is is definitely a huge part of the issue. Obviously, both sides are very emotionally charged. Um, but that, that label, bleeding heart liberal, it does come from something it comes from. Um, you see people who are arguing for a cause. I see it all the time. I see people arguing for a cause that I am totally behind, but they argue for it in this way that is so unconvincing. And they go and we could we could even delve into this, uh, the protests, right? The, the Black Lives Matter protests. We're seeing it should be pretty obvious that when stuff like this happens too often, when people are mistreated by police too often without repercussions, we just will go in and we'll fix it somehow. You know, we will make some changes. And that's that's completely right. There's some big changes that need to be made. But where the left tends to lose um, people and where people tend to oppose themselves against the issue itself, against, you know, the idea that of black lives matter. Um, It's because even though you might be able to get them to agree to that basic idea that, Hey, if there's a problem here, we should make some changes to fix it. uh, People are arguing for it in the wrong way. They're going around and trying to um, make statements in ways that are not convincing to people. Now that's, some places did go to a point of what the right wants to just call rioting and um, stuff that they shouldn't have been doing, stuff that was horrible, right? Uh, and they can use that when they see those kinds of arguments for the position, right? When they see people promoting Black Lives Matter or whatever other issue in that way, they're going to diametrically oppose themselves to it when there's a million good ways that we could um argue for a change in the system without presenting ourselves as another problem. Um, it's the emotion in all of it, you know. Even think about that uh, Greta Thunberg um, girl, she is fighting for one of the most important causes of our generation. But even I find myself unconvinced by her because it's all an appeal to emotion and that doesn't um, satisfy everything that people need to jump onto a cause. Some people will be incredibly suckered in just on the emotion. But what people really need is, hey, look at this. We can see that this is an issue. We can see that we're going to be in some deep shit if we don't change the way that we relate to our environment. Um, there's money involved. You could spout the monetary facts at people. You could show them that they're going to, you know, not be in a good ec- economic place if they can't, um, live on this earth right but they're not convinced by little girls crying on tv and they're not convinced by like angry liberals you know they actually it makes them hate that side of things um and of course the right is completely guilty of this kind of shit too um a lot of times involving an appeal to religion or some other thing that not everybody's going to jump in on you with so uh, it shouldn't be entirely logic-based, but it needs to be less emotional. That leads to one of the things that, um, that I have 
been mulling over about the left for, for a minute now. And that's, I feel like the left has a labeling issue. There are, and I don't know what the particular solution is, but I grew up conservative and coming from that background, a lot of the concepts, the, the, the topic names that the left uses, particularly social justice, um, I don't agree quite with everything that they believe, but there are a lot of concepts that are very important that I feel um, are worth talking about. That they label with things that are very emotionally charged. Very things much. like things like rape culture, for example. What if you go and tell tell a person who's not part of those circles who doesn't have background in social justice that America has rape culture. They're going to look at you like, what on earth are you talking about? And I don't support rape. I don't know anybody who supports rape. Rape is illegal in the United States. It's a horrible, horrible crime, and I think everyone would agree. But that's not what they're talking about, and so I feel like it's a mislabel to call it rape culture. And it's it's not just... It might not be a mislabel... I, I, I'll take that back. It's needlessly controversial, and it doesn't help people get an intuitive understanding of what you're talking about in a way that will bring them to the table to discuss solutions. You're, you're going to end up arguing over whether or not this thing exists because they don't understand what it is because of the name before you can even get out of your mouth what it is. Yeah, you're not – you're never – hopefully – never going to disagree with somebody who comes up to you and says hey like rape is wrong and there's we can see some places where it's not being addressed appropriately we should do that but you're not going to agree with the person that comes up to you and say they're that that stereotypical sjw college kid that everybody hates and i hate you know i hate him too uh the one that comes up and says fucking you're you're a rapist because you're a white male and also, like, sushi is rape because it's stealing it from Japanese culture. You get people that come up with stuff that's a little uh, beyond what the issue is and you can't agree with necessarily. And then they get lumped up with everybody else who argues for the fundamental issue. The fundamental issue is very real. But the, the, the uh, peripheral things that people bring up, like, hey, I think air conditioning is sexist because girls get colder than guys. Uh, then it's so much harder to identify with that movement because you're like, well, if that's how far we're going to take this, then obviously none of these people must be right. And unfortunately, people think in black and white like that. Um, and so they're unable to try to parse out um, the parts that they absolutely would fundamentally agree with. It's, but the thing, the, the thing that, I, that frustrates me is, is I, in talking to people that are on the left, and I would consider myself in practical terms, on the left. Um, but in talking to them, I asked them, you know, why not rebrand this stuff? Why not relabel it, recontextualize it so that <sighs> these people who don't have these backgrounds will understand and you can get your point across? Why are you so married to the words themselves rather than the ends that you are trying to achieve? Right. It has to do with identity. It really does, and that's a shame, the way people identify with their party, 
with a certain type of policy, yeah. with a, their certain conception of what the world is. They identify with it, and they can't uh, wiggle out of that. Um, the tribalism. Yeah, the, the tribal us versus them. Yes. That's, you know, I think that's, that's part of the emotional issue is that emotions get tied up into all this stuff. I really think, um, hey, here's a start. We should educate our children in the fundamentals of philosophy when they're young, you know, because understanding how to think uh, completely unbiased to an issue to just think through it, and, you know, analyze its elements in a very deep way is a skill that people struggle with. It, the news cycle does not um, allow you to do that. Yeah, that's not what the news cycle is for, but that's what people consume, and they're not educated otherwise. It's very hard to reach people who don't know how to take what you're saying seriously. Do you think... So this... I recently took class in philosophy, and one thing that I noticed... Um, is that a lot of a lot of it is bogged down in very I understand the necessity for it that they're trying to be very particular with the way that they word things based on the definitions that they define but I find myself reading through um, a particular work of, of a philosopher and having to refer back to their definitions to make sure I understand what they're talking about and often these these definitions are paragraph long. <laughs> Uh, explanations of what their terms are and you're constantly having to refer back and, and do a lot of mental work like how would you say that we would bridge that gap for people that are young you know that not understanding you know what a what a uh, existential crisis is because a lot of people have heard that term and I feel like after learning what it is people misuse it all the time yeah, that's a that's a problem. Even as someone who spent four years, it's my fifth year actually, uh, in an academic philosophy setting, I still hate that. I think that's where you get this stereotype that all philosophers are rich old white dudes sitting in their armchair parlor, you know, because it's all become so mm -hmm. exotic. It should be simple. And I think that that's sometimes where religion and spirituality fills the gap because it uh, largely tries to address similar um, similar things, morality, metaphysics, all this. It tries to address it in a way that does move people and make them understand it. And, of course, that can lead to uh, a wrong understanding of the philosophical concepts behind it, as we can see with just about any major religion that exists. It becomes more about the the text and the symbolism rather than the meaning behind it. But uh, that's I think that's a way throughout history that... Uh, philosophy has been disseminated in a, a fairly approachable way for people. Um, so that's why I have such an interest in religion and ritual and spirituality. But, and I'm not maybe, saying we should uh, necessarily breach that. That's not how I think we should breach it to kids. You know, if we're going to start, if we're talking about like the school system and introducing these kinds of teachings into a school system, it needs to be the academic sense. It needs to be, and it has to be simplified just you know teaching does it though well yes you can't I don't... throw hobbs in front of some fifth graders and accept, expect them to uh want to not not verbatim right right but 
think that, that having I think that having a more exploratory approach to it for kids, tapping into that curiosity yes. would be beneficial in, in doing it in a way where um, you pose the same questions that Hobbes was trying to answer, yes. right? And you have everybody discuss it and talk about their answers for it just intuitively. Well, and that's how we and then do get it. Into- that's how we do it even in a college setting. Um, everybody understands that's the best way to get it done is to it's most philosophy classes in a college setting are discussion based and the text is there but uh, for someone like myself I get more I'll read the text but to understand it better I need those secondary sources that aren't full of superfluous language and all that uh, and then discuss it and then write about it write about it yourself in your own words and try to work through it that way that's what works definitely not just textbook reading i i will shun the textbook in favor of a secondary source quite often um it's important to have that skill to be able to uh try to get something out of the original text but these are largely written by people who use a language that is not approachable to the average person um and there's no reason it should be it's not the most effective form of communication um, but you start there and you make it personal. Like you say, you, you let them explore it. Um, and the more time someone spends exploring these things, the, the better they understand how to question, you know, how to, uh, if you want to apply it to politics today, they wouldn't just run with the party with the prettier flag. You know, they would be like, okay, let's break down the beliefs of this organization and, look at the world itself and see whether what they're saying really maps onto it. Um, it's a tall order to expect people to do that 24 seven, right? No one has time to break everything apart, supposedly. Speaking to the, the political issue, how do you, how do we combat sensationalism? The, the, this like very, these appeals to emotion, these va- like not super important issues that everyone starts to cling to because they're hot button issues that, that in the grand scheme of things, not to say that they don't matter, but they don't matter nearly as much as more pertinent things. Well, how I see that is it's an identity issue. Uh, when you have a culture of people who have not figured out how to uh, understand themselves they look for other ways to understand themselves aka identifying with something identifying with your party with your church group with your race with your culture with american exceptionalism whatever it fills gaps that people don't know how to solve on their own and so they become very attached to those things just like uh say a young unconfident virgin has their first like romantic relationship it usually those don't go well right and after that 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 person is devastated because they had tried to fill some of the gaps in their own self-understanding, self-confidence. They tried to fill it with like an external thing with another person. And that's why it's painful to get broken up with, right? Because you identify with that person. Um, It's the same issue anywhere. People that are not satisfied in that way internally have to attach to something. They have to have a group. It's great to have a group. It's great to have a culture to identify with. It's good for you, but it um, takes up too much of the work that it takes to keep a person feeling 
at peace with themselves. That's how I conceptualize. So how do how do we galvanize? Because I feel like that 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 the whole you know the the group thing is a necessity of human nature. We, we're social creatures. We need to be part of groups. And um, there's there's a lot of case to be made that we, we can get into another time about the defense of um, of stereotypes and the defense of of these these uh, tribalist groups right. because there are good things about them. But the thing that that is how do we take this tendency of people into you know to to form groups and to have shibboleths to identify each other with um shared experiences how do we take that and create and use it as a positive um force instead of one that's that's destructive yeah because you're completely right it's necessary and it's great it's beautiful um even so when i came into military culture that's thing i did not understand um i didn't realize how fulfilling it would be to be a part of a a uh, close-knit group of people like that. It's like a second family, and that feels good, and it makes you better to, you know, sociologists can, child psychologists can show you that having groups like these does make you better. It makes you um, care more about fulfilling certain virtues and values. It's great. How do you ensure that that culture is um, leading you to do those things, right? Like, how do you build a culture that's going to promote all those best things um, and that doesn't rely on that identity. Like the identity can be parsed out of it and it can be um, something you don't have to religiously and um, sickeningly like identify with to the death. It can be something that you continue to explore. How do you make that a thing while still keeping it strong? I don't know. (laughs) Um, You know, that comes down to who's forming the culture and who forms culture right now. It's the people that are kind of at the top of the echelon, you know, um, the government forms culture, the rich and powerful form culture, the culture and the people forming culture right now, we could very easily argue have uh, certain interests in mind, right? Which would be, getting people to behave in ways that is conducive to them. If you look at the rise of consumerist advertising, which uh, there's a great documentary I should send you. It's called Hap- uh, Happiness Machines, I believe. And it, it details how the nephew of Freud, um, he came to America and he taught corporations and ad firms how to get people to identify on a very deep level with products and culture. And of course, that led to, um, you know, governments adopting that kind of practice to to psychologically manipulate people into acting in a way that was conducive to the continuance of what they were doing. Um, The leadership issue, how you solve that, how you uh, change over that leadership and what that leadership should do to do better. I uh, am am not equipped to give a remedy because... I am, after all, just a 22-year-old college kid, right? But that's where we need to look. It's, it's from the top down. Um, it's from the individual level as well. 
um, in equal power, right? Like the individuals need to kind of pull themselves up by the bootstraps and and decide to take life seriously in this way. Um, But it's infinitely harder for individuals to come to that when they're constantly being led by a different message in their media, in their law, in political debates, so on. So got to burn that candle at both ends, you know. You got to help individuals one by one, but you also have to change the overarching structure that forms their experience. Hmm. I feel I feel that um that the that that burning the candle at both ends is a good analogy. And I feel like the individual side has been neglected. Um, that it used to be filled, as you say, by, um, by it, it can be filled by the spheres of um, philosophy and um, religion. And um, usually those two things, um, as well as other things, but those are more indi- specific to individuals. These are things that can span across individuals at an individual level. And I feel like our our society is becoming more secular. Yes. And <clears throat> at the same time, our society, I don't know that just if we can say that it's neglected um, philosophy. I would say that, that we see ourselves as sort of a post-philosophy society, which is not the case, and, and I would argue that we need it now more than ever. Um, we need things to guide us through the voids that we face. You know, philosophy at its inception was, was to d- explain the world around us. And as, we, as science was able to explain more about the world around us, it seemed like there was less and less for philosophy to answer. But now with religion on the decline, I feel like there's a lot of room for subjective human experience to exist in philosophy. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because that is the Nietzschean project, right? So if you think back to what Friedrich Nietzsche was talking about when he made his rantings and ravings, uh, what he described was a, first of all, a decline in the power of religion to help people find this fulfillment, right? Um, less and less, the, the death of God, right? Less and less people had compelling reasons to follow these doctrines and to believe that they were right, uh, to believe in a God or, or any of that. And so then what do you have when you don't have those? Um you get a lot of nihilism, right? Because then what do you believe in? Um, and I, I definitely think we're in a period of nihilism now. Uh, much of our youth culture doesn't know if there's any value worth attaching themselves to, so everything's just kind of willy-nilly. And that's great in a way because we did need to step back and breathe from the strict discipline that modern religions have have become, right? It's become... Here's an issue. Uh, the p- modern Christian idea that worship and reverence for your values and your God has to happen in the church with like an officiated group with a, an established church. 
with the Catholic Church, which is an empire, it's a huge business, um, and all the other ones, it has become less, there's less responsibility on the individual to have a personal relationship with their values. You don't worship at home, necessarily, in an authentic and individual way. You listen to someone else tell you what's supposed to happen. You have to go to an official church ceremony. The ritual is taken out of the individual's hand. That's why I, that's why I like studying uh, alternative religions, uh, neo-paganism, even Wiccan and witchcraft, um, because what's different about those sorts of spiritual systems, <clears throat> even though they also invoke uh, the supernaturalism, um, they don't require the same amount of commitment to an institution of religion. It's an individual practice. Um, that's where I think it's beneficial for people because they get to engage with the world on their own terms and try to communicate with it, you know, um, to try to really work through what they value and what they don't without this fear of ostracization, ostracization, I can't speak, um, or this fear of being pressed down on some other, by some other institution to conform. Um, that kind of individual understanding of the world is what the world is lacking right now. It's a group understanding and not, you know, figuring out on your own. So that's where the individual level is satisfied by a religion is when you get to personally engage with your God or your values or your belief system, whatever it is that your, you know, religious or spiritual system prescribes. Um, I think that's what's good for individuals. I want to I want to qualify that um, a little bit and say that um, although that that journey is one taken by an individual to you know interact with um, your belief system, what however that manifests, um, that that journey doesn't have to be always taken in solitude. Like you 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 have there are within paganism, as you mentioned, there, there are other people who are pagans as well that can support you. And if you're saying, you know, I, I am facing these big questions, you can go and talk to people who say, I answered that question this way. And, and you don't here are some other people. Completely, you, have to, you get to think about it. There's not a exactly. pressure to conform to that. You're absolutely right. That's a necessary portion. There has to be the community portion. There has to be say, going to church on Sunday, you know, it is a great thing. Um, coming together with those people and sharing ideas and sharing growth, absolutely necessary. Um, but where the, a lot of modern churches have not given, they've given people too much of that community side and less of that private reflection. It, it, you have to take it upon yourself to do that. It's not encouraged. Um, so yeah, it has to have both, Absolutely. Because I would say that, what that, we want is a common connection. We want throughout a whole nation or throughout a whole planet, you want some kind of common ground, some kind of common values, some kind of brotherhood. That's absolutely necessary. I think that that modern religion, and only in some places, has it lost its way in that sense. But I definitely see at least the the remnants of systems that were in place to satisfy those needs like um silent prayer during 
Christian congregations. And um, in the Muslim faith, you have, you know, five prayers a day. You do that by yourself. Um, Sometimes you can do them in groups led by people, but the vast majority of the time you are by yourself in silent reflection with you and God. And there's other examples in other religions. And um, another, another example of sort of like the mentorship role is in, you know, in the Catholic church, you have confessional where um, if you have a good preach priest, um, you sit in and you, talk about the things that are weighing on your brain, your, your sins, the things that are, that you feel guilty about. And they discuss them with you. They talk about how to attain atonement, you know, forgiving, seeking forgiveness from the people that you've wronged and forgiving yourself and, um, and giving you a, a quantifiable way to achieve that. We, we, uh, there's a lot of, um, a lot of criticism about the Catholic church, you know, you tell them that, that you've committed an, an egregious sin and they tell you to do 20 Hail Marys, but that yeah. is a ritual that's in place for the, the, the believers of that who believe in that faith um, to have a way for them to feel that they have paid, that they have the, a quantifiable instead of constantly um, punishing themselves day in and day out, remembering this memory, they have a way to move on. That's it's absolutely uh, great when it's done well. Um, of course, we do have controversies over how that kind of system is operated. Uh, obviously, Martin Luther's uh, great uh, divergence from the Catholic Church because the Catholic Church had begun to use confessional as a way to say, okay, you know, if you come in and you tell us all your sins, and you pay some money, you're good. And um, if it's done in that way, it's not the kind of uh, deep personal reflection and deep mentorship that it's supposed to be. Uh, But when it is done in that right way, it is uh, something that's necessary, something that you do have to do. You do have to be able to confer your problems with another person, someone like a priest whose, whose goal is to help people through that. I do believe in the necessity of a priesthood of some kind in whatever, whatever you follow. Um, not a priesthood as in like a governance, but the priest as the figure in a community that, you know, is dedicated to helping people through those issues without judgment or without prescribing the Hail Marys or whatever you have. Um, and then what you talked about with prayer is exactly how um, individual sense of religion helps people i think prayer is one of the most important parts of that um and when i say prayer i think that should mean this personal silent reflection this uh you could say a communication with your with you if you believe in god you know i do believe in a a god not necessarily the christian conception but sitting there and just trying to it's a meditation is what it should be what i think is a problem that we've seen is that prayer is then written out to you and given to you by your, your priest. Like there's uh, the Lord's prayer and stuff like that. Uh, they prescribe to you what you're supposed to be thinking about when you're praying. That, that shouldn't happen. Uh, maybe it should happen in some situations, but that's where you lose the personal significance of prayer. And it becomes more 
repeating the mantras of your organization and kind of indoctrinating you into a sense of identity with that um, specific way of doing things. Not that I don't think none of those written prayers or psalms uh, can be healing and beneficial, but that uh, what prayer really should constitute is that individual sense of uh, coming to understanding. So the ritual is so incredibly important for, for humans. Um, you see rather bizarre things out of uh, more magical religions, you know, magical ceremony, ritual, um, but that structure, structuring an activity for your mind to better understand uh, the messages behind the symbolism that you're trying to impart, having theater involved in your um, cultural activities, um, that's good for the brain to understand it. So having those cultural elements like, you know, magical rituals, meditation, prayer, Catholic mass, um, is so important for the human brain. It's structured in a way that it has to, uh, it gets its information better that way. I feel like I feel like there's there's a lot of um, complex issues that are facing our society. A lot of a lot of things that could. I don't even know what I'm trying to say. It's it's too big. the The web of problems that we face as a society is too much to keep track of because, as we said earlier, it's all gone unchecked for many centuries. Um, the movement, like maybe not some individuals, maybe um, live their lives in this this healthy way we're prescribing and think about things in this way, but the movement has has not been beneficial to this. It's been about compliance and someone else is thinking about it for you. And we've had that for so long that now as we start to see parts of it unraveling, it's overwhelming to pull the thread. It's how do you organize a government to try to systematically undo all that? It's such a complicated task. Um, that's why I think that at least this calamity of a couple of years that we've had, um, from, you know, the presidential races, the, the people that we got in power right now, the Trump administration to COVID to starting to wake up to the environmental crisis. All of this is good because as you said earlier, we're riding the knife's edge and we're going to fall off on one way or another. For me, I think either direction is still progressive because if we, if, if worst case scenario, the system just stops working, there's just a collapse, just everything is in chaos. We have a chance to, we're forced to um, look at these issues. We're forced to think on our feet and think about how we're going to rebuild things. Um, that's a natural progression of civilizations. You know, something's not working. If you don't fix it, it collapses, and then you have to do something else. You're forced to. 
Uh, it's hard learning. I think civilization is hard learning and will continue to be for, you know, how long, how long till we reach a point that we like, right? We're not, we're not going to reach a point that we're comfortable with for a very long time. We're a fairly young species if we think about, you know, the time span of existence. So we need a lot of time, a lot of mistakes, a lot of collapses, a lot of failures, and we're just going to have to be forced to grow. You know, we can't, it's, it's too hard for us to force it necessarily. We can try in places, we can attack it from angles. We can have groups that are fighting to educate people about climate change. We can have groups that are fighting to help individuals get better therapists and religious leaders and such helping people on an individual level. Uh, we can attack it from different angles, but it's a hard process. It's not, there's not an answer in the form of a policy that we can put in place that will just fix everything. That, that leads to um, my solution that I've discussed with you in conversations before, but I'll mention it here. Um, the secular monastery. Yes. Um, I had been mulling over the idea of, you know, the, the implications of the death of religion in our society as an institution. And as it declines, it's and it is declining it's a reality whether you are religious or not we have to collectively stomach the implications of that and what is lost and i and um i think that the solution to that is i'm sort of a um the idea that i have is is to have a monastery drawing from monastic traditions of of various cultures across the world that have existed. Um, it, and um, creating a space for communities to come together for uh, meditation in various different forms of, of how that, that takes place. And for a space to help people answer these big questions that are, that they're faced with as individuals and as a larger society and to, to also hopefully be that guiding force for the collective education of humanity as a species and as a collective. Right. And as pessimistic as the picture looks, I think you find a lot of people that, understand that idea completely i understand it it's exactly the kind of um solution that i come to often um is that we do need a new religious guiding force but one that sheds some of the the issues with religion that we've had um i see you know you've got groups like the unitarian church um that i think are largely kind of on that vibe right now you, I talk to a lot of people in casual conversation and we get to the issue of religion and it all, it does come to that um, understanding that there's elements of religion that we miss, that we want, that work for us, but that we cannot commit to some of the ones that exist right now and that we need a, a third party, so to speak. Um, I think so many people nowadays do understand that, that an idea like that can like gain, gain traction, right? It's, it's, 
it's just uniting all those people that have been working on their individual level of understanding, um, but lack that community that they can go to that will kind of unite them. You know, if you think about, um, I'll go back to like uh, neo-pagans and Wiccans. Uh, they do a lot of deep stuff on their own, but they don't necessarily meet because they're a very widespread people, kind of an outside group. Um, if you get all those people that think that way, not necessarily in the magical sense, but um, just trying to find a reasonable way to fill the void of religion, of, of Christianity and of Islam and of all that, um, those people are there and they're on the same train and they just, there needs to be something uniting them. Because a lot of times those people are very isolated in a community of people that are caught up in the wave of this problem society that we have. So they don't get the support. And then they, you know, get to like going to basic training. I was very glad to meet a couple people there that from different parts of the world that totally vibed with me on that. You, you included and my good friend, specialist heart, but um, it's, it's comforting to run into those people. Cause you know, uh, people that think this way are not alone. You know, they're just not linked through the types of groups that the churches have. You know, with that, I think that we should probably wrap up pretty soon. Um, next time, we can dive more into what the monastery looks like specifically, um, and also get a little bit more specific about the issues, big issues that society faces. Absolutely. Um, we can start having, we'll have episodes about specific issues themselves, how that relates to the monastery, the role that it would play. And uh, yeah. All right. Well, it's been good. Uh, we'll be back. Uh, what is today? Should we do this every Tuesday or should we find a different day? Uh, but we can plan for Tuesday, but I'd, I'm, I'm going to go with it's going to happen when it happens. That's right. That's all you can really know for sure in life. All righty. Well, it's been good. Have a good night, Alex. You too.